Good morning. It's a privilege for me to be here today. I count Pastor Elward a, a good friend and appreciate his faithfulness here at Ambassador. I've known a number of you for a good number of years, probably the the Caramans, as long as I've known anyone here, including, I think, my wife. Uh, the Caramans' son and I went to school from 7th through 12th grade together, so they were on the sidelines. We were playing sports together, so it's good to see them and so many others here. I appreciate your faithfulness to God and to the Gospel. I appreciate that passage that was read this morning, and uh, before I begin, uh, that passage is going to tie in very well with uh, my challenge this evening. If you wanted to read ahead this afternoon, I'll be preaching out of Psalm 78. Apart from Psalm 119, it is the longest psalm. Uh, Don't be worried. I I don't plan to preach out of every verse there. Um, But that passage that was read this morning uh, is a compelling truth. And we'll see a bit of the history of the nation of Israel as we come together again tonight. I hope you'll join us. Let's ask God's help before we begin. Lord, we are grateful this day for Jesus Christ and all that He's accomplished for us. Apart from Your seeking us, we would be hopelessly lost. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We thank You for that. We are grateful that we can rejoice in the forgiveness of sins that we can have bold confidence that He has prepared a place for us. That one day when we breathe our last here, to be absent from the body for those who are believers will be to be present with our dear Lord. Until that time comes, O Lord, you call us home or you come back to claim us for your own. You ask us to be faithful. So today as we look into Your Word, I ask, that You would help me to be faithful to Your Word. Give me clarity of thought and word that Your Spirit might work through me as I faithfully preach Your Word. Lord, we need Your truth. We need Your help at this time. In Christ's name, Amen. Sometimes we forget important things. Tax day. That's a bad thing to forget. A spouse's birthday, that's a bad thing to forget. Other days, perhaps Mother's Day, Father's Day, these are bad things. Uh, When I think of things that I've forgotten, there are a number of things that come to mind. One day in particular, though, back in the late 1990s, I had taken the morning off from work and I'd borrowed my brother's boat and was taking a couple of friends uh, with me to Orchard Lake, uh, Ken Endy and Billy Gocher, for those of you who might know them. Uh, We were going to enjoy a beautiful morning on the lake, water skiing and tubing early in the morning. We were out there by about 6 o'clock, beautiful day. I enjoy the water. I like boats. I like pulling trailers. So we were off to a good start. Backed the boat into the boat ramp without struggling. Tied the boat off. Then I pulled the truck and trailer out. Parked it came back, and by this time the friends are getting their the skis out and the, the ropes untangled and straightened out. Start the boat up, warmed it up, went out through the no-wake zone. And what do you do when you get out of the no-wake zone? You open it up. You take it across the lake. Only this time something was a little bit different. As I'm going across the lake, the boat was like 
deep in the water. It was standing up, and it wasn't coming up onto a plane. And so I started messing with the trim, thinking perhaps the trim was up too high. And then all of a sudden, a moment of terror gripped my soul. I forgot the plug in the boat. So I, I, I whipped the boat around, and I head full throttle back towards shore. Billy Gocher, he was my boss at the time, he looked concerned. Ken Endine was grinning from ear to ear. I wasn't afraid of drowning. I knew how to swim. I was afraid that I was going to sink my brother's boat in the middle of Orchard Lake. Well, I got back into shore, you know, jumped out of the boat after I got the plug, went to the back of the boat, and what do I do? I drop the plug. So now I stick my finger in the, in the hole. I'm reaching on the bottom. I, I find the plug, put the plug in the hole, and now we're up by shore. The bilge pump has been running, so I let the boat idle. It pumps and pumps for about five minutes. I finally went and I got the truck, pulled the boat out of the water, pulled the plug, and there's a long stream of water for four or five minutes emptying the boat out. I'm not sure... But I think I was within three to five minutes of um, sinking my brother's boat. My brother's not here today. Um, my memory says I told it within a few months. He said it was years afterward. Whatever it was, it, sh <laughs> it should have been right away. So I'm not proud of that. Something very simple, but I forgot about it and almost had a shipwreck out there on Orchard Lake. Unfortunately, in our spiritual lives, sometimes we forget about things that are common, that are familiar, and they can have a profound impact on us when we lose sight of them, when we forget them. Uh, as was just mentioned, I've taken a few seminary classes with your pastor. It's good to study theology. There are truths in God's Word that we will forever in this life, and I think in the life to come, study struggle to learn and struggle to understand. And I think some truths that we can grapple with come to that distinction between we as God's creatures and He as our Creator. But I think that more of our struggles come with things that we know and we understand. We just lose sight of them. And this is the idea that Tite, or Paul has as he is writing to Titus here in this brief letter in the New Testament. As we look into this passage today, I, I hope that we can gain an appreciation and understanding for a very familiar idea, but one that can have a profound impact on us. And as a take-home truth is stated there in your notes, a proper understanding of God's mercy and salvation prompts believers to live a godly life. We're going to spend some time today looking at God's mercy. As we understand this, I hope that we appreciate it and we don't forget about it. If we forget about God's mercy in our lives, it can lead to devastating effects. Just to paint a little bit of the backdrop of this book before we get into the message today, the theme for this book is godliness for the sake of the gospel. We need to live a godly life for the sake of the gospel. It's our living testimony to the truth that God has saved us by His grace, and we are then His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Paul says in Ephesians 2. But if you look down at uh, Titus 1.16, we hear this idea here. Paul 
paints a clear contrast between the Cretan teachers, Paul's writing to a pastor on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea, and there's a difference between the teachers there and what Paul desires of Titus as a pastor here. He says, they, these Cretan teachers, profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. False teachers, they profess to know God, but there is no changed life. There's no godliness there. Uh, in the beginning of chapter 2, as Paul gives those qualifications for those who would serve as a pastor, uh, he says in Titus 2, verse 7, that they should, he should show himself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Good works, a changed life, godliness. Also, Titus 2, 11 through 14, a very familiar passage. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what does this grace that has come, that's appeared, what does it do? In verse 12, it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous, eager for good works, a godly life. Titus 2.11, the grace of God appears. In the passage that we'll look at today, we'll see that the mercy of God has appeared. His mercy and His kindness. Whereas the grace of God unmistakably changes the individual. Grace is God's undeserved and unearned kindness, His favor toward those who deserve immediate judgment. So instead of hell, we receive heaven and the blessings of life. That is by God's grace. This grace produces good works. It eradicates bit by bit the domination of sin. But then as we're saved, we also enjoy God's mercy. We forget things. We forget things like God's grace. And we forget things like God's mercy. And we do so to our own peril. So in this passage today, Paul's going to give us three reminders that will drive this truth home. That if we understand God's mercy and our salvation, it will prompt us to live a godly life. Do we need a reminder? I think we do. Whether we're 40 years old or 80 or whether we're 10, we need to be reminded. We certainly want to not be so focused on our works. We want to be focused on God. But if, we are God, if we're godly, then it's going to naturally follow that we'll have a life of good works. What are these reminders? Look with me first at Titus 3, 1 and 2, and we'll see a reminder about godly living in the world. A reminder about godly living in the world. Paul says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, 
gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The background of these verses should be familiar. Paul doesn't tell Titus to give them new truths. Reveal a mystery to them. What does he say? There in the first two, two words, he says, remind them. I'm a principal. Cumulative tests. Do most students like them or do most students loathe them? I hate them. It just seems like when we're tested over something over a long period of time, students just don't like it. And I must say that I find myself there. But really, if it is a review, if it's cumulative, we already should have learned this, so we should be able to just remind ourselves of these things, go over them, and do just fine. Cumulative verse tests should be that way for anyone taking a Bible, uh, Bible class. You've memorized it, you know it, re be reminded of it. But they can only be a review or can only be a reminder if it has already been learned. Here, Paul is assuming that these people have learned it, they he, they just need Titus to stir these thoughts up. In what way should godly living show itself? Godly living impacts how we respond to governmental authorities. Godly living impacts how we respond to governmental authorities. As Christians, we should be exemplary citizens. We should be. Why? Why should we be exemplary citizens? Because the authorities that are in place, like them or not, are part of God's structure, His order in human society. If we are not good citizens, we are not good Christians. Um, was the governmental authorities that Paul had to deal with there, were they great folks? Were they kind to the cause of Christ? Rome certainly wasn't. What about the cities that Paul would visit? Where did Paul often end up? In jail. At the hands of whom? The governmental authorities. And what does Paul say here? Even in the face of this, these ungodly rulers, he says, remind them to be obedient. To, subject to rulers, to authorities. Uh, two other passages that that touch on this idea are Second Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter two, verses thirteen through seventeen, and Romans chapter thirteen, one through seven. Peter says, "Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution." A little later, he says, "It is God's will." Verse seventeen: Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. God works through governmental authorities. We ought to pray, as Paul told Timothy, that we can, for governmental leaders, offer petitions and prayer on their behalf that we can live a quiet and peaceable life. It's right for us to pray that way, but we need to be careful to be obedient to them. Romans 13, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. And whether it's our local communities, I live in Sterling Heights, I'm assistant pastor in Troy, and we're here in Royal Oak, whether it's local government or national government, there are leaders that we appreciate and think are doing a good job, 
honoring the values on which this nation was founded and some that aren't. But what does Paul say? He says, those which are exist are established by God. There have been some ruthless tyrants that we know, based on the pages of inspired Scripture, that were used by God. What about Pharaoh? The Old Testament. He was a ruthless tyrant. But even how wicked Pharaoh was, God was using him to show how great he was. What if government makes bad laws? Can we disobey then? And we might want to disobey. We might think they make bad laws. We, I think uh, our government is pretty much crooked in the way they handle money. How many of us can get away with spending money like people on either side of that aisle, as far as I'm con concerned, spend money? We can't. can't uh, for that long anyway. Otherwise, we're going to be in a heap of trouble. Well, if they're making bad laws, I think we can be still be good citizens and try to get these laws changed or elect the right people that can, that can honor hard work and responsibility. This is obviously, though, not blind obedience. Acts 5.29 would say that we obey God rather than men. If our government tells us to sin, then we yield to the higher authority, which is God, and we certainly can't sin and in obeying our government, violate God's law. But I think that idea is often abused and misused. If we don't like something, that's no reason for us to disobey those whom God has set up. And by this, we want to be sure that we realize that we cannot strip our submission to God-ordained authorities in our life from our growth in godliness. When the local government says, get a building permit, what should the church do or people in the church do? You get a building permit, though my basic bent is they want money and they want control, and you've got to bow to them, um, we, we need to obey laws. And, and why is this? What happens if one of our local officials come through the door here at Ambassador or at First Baptist? We want to give them the gospel. And if they know that we're just tyrants and we're always disobedient, always uh, stirring up the peace, um, disobeying the laws, this is a problem. We need to understand that part of our good works, part of living a godly life, means that we obey the governing authorities. But also, in verse 2, we see that godly living impacts how we respond to all people. This would be capital B. Godly living impacts how we respond to all people. Verse 2, remind them, from verse 1, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. To malign who? No one. This impacts how we should speak about everyone. Can we ever drop our guard with this? Speaking evil? No. You know what this does to any group, any family, any local church? When you are any workplace, any any group you're a part of, when one person is maligning another, speaking evilly, the same word is the, is the word that's translated in other places to blaspheme, to destroy, to speak evil of them. Matthew twenty six sixty five. This is how Christ was treated when his persecutors began to lash out against him, 
intent on destroying him. What does that do? It rips apart the unity and fellowship of a group. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouths. When it says corrupt communication, he doesn't just mean bad words. What he means is destructive words, words that tear down. Instead, only that which is good to the use of edifying, building up, that it may minister grace to those who hear. We have to be careful not to just cut people down. What, do, what happens when we cut someone else down? How does that make us look? It makes us look better, right? So it's a natural tendency for us to speak evil against others. Paul says we need to malign no one. We must have kind words. Um, often unkindness in our mouth, unkindness in our words comes when we're opposed to someone or they're, on a different, they're in a different group. We feel some sense of competition with them. Uh, occasionally, I come out to our church on a Monday night to play basketball. Unfortunately, if you see me limping, it's just because my right ankle just is not cooperating. If my team is down, mind you, it's really informal. <laughs> I play hard, as hard as I can at my size, we'll say. If my team is down... 8 to the other team, 11. Sometimes I'll jokingly say, it's 11, 8 bad guys. Right? <laughs> That's joking. I'm not saying anything morally about them. These are, are bad people just because it's the good guys against the bad guys. But sometimes in our life, we have a tendency to look at someone else based on their position, their possessions, things they have, things they have that we want. And we look for ways where we can tear them down and make them look bad. James has something to say about this as well. He says in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. We can't say... We want to praise God and lift Him up and at the same time be maligning others. God, help us to have kind words. That's one practical way we can show forth godliness in our life. Also, number two, we must have a kind disposition. Paul says we are to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle. To be peaceable. What is the opposite of being at peace? It's to be at war, quarreling. Fighting, like unkind words has to go, fighting has to go. Where, where do problems come from? Wars among you, James says. Come they not even of your own lust and desires. You're frustrated and you're thinking basically just about yourself. Timothy, or, Timothy uh, is challenged by this as well when Paul writes to him when he talks about the qualifications for those who would be a pastor that they are not quarrelsome, not looking to pick a fight. I think too often we walk around at church, in our workplaces, with our family, with the safety off, with our finger on the trigger, if you will, ready to fight. Our defenses are up. We're ready to tango. What happens when you're driving here, 
well, I won't ask how many went out shopping on Black Friday. Um, I don't think I was at a store. If it was, it wasn't to take advantage of Black Friday. It was because I needed something from Home Depot on a house project. What happens when you're going for a parking space and someone hits the gas and they scoot in there in front of you? What's the tendency if it's up close? Didn't you see me there? And we quarrel. But unfortunately, it's more than just pulling into a parking space. We, we can bicker and we can fight. Instead of quarreling, we're to be gentle. We shouldn't insist on every right that we have based on the law, based on tradition, based on custom. We should learn to yield to others. A practical way for us to show godliness Use kind words, but also have a kind disposition. Don't look to pick a fight. Or if someone else picks the fight, what does it take? Someone to respond for there to be a fight. I wish I could say that I have this mastered. These are convicting ideas. Have kindness in our words, kindness in our disposition, but also kindness in our actions. The end of this verse, verse number 2, he says, showing Every consideration for all men, or to show perfect courtesy toward all people, the ESV translates it. I like that translation, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This, all, this has the idea of showing true humility in every detail of life, the things that we do. This is how our Lord lived. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul challenging this church here. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. We must show kindness toward others. So, what reminder do we need? A reminder that godly living impacts our daily life. We can't just talk about, I want to live a godly life. Okay, then obey the government. Obey the rulers there. Pray for them. If there is an impasse, we obey God rather than men. But we look to be good citizens. And in our life, as we interact with husband and wife, with children, with friends in the church, co-workers, our pursuit of godliness needs to impact the words that we use. It needs to impact our attitude. And it needs to impact our actions. In the civic arena, Christians are to be responsible as the best citizens. This group here, those of you who live here in Royal Oak, ought to be of the finest citizens in Royal Oak, like I should be in Sterling Heights, or like our members should be in Troy. When it comes to the ideals for human virtue, we ought to be the examples there. That as our neighbors interact with us, whether they know Christ or not, they ought to see and sense in us genuine love for others and a willingness to pitch in and give a helping hand to be kind. But what else can, can we be reminded of that will help us appreciate God's mercy and thus prompt good, good works in our life? Look down at verse 3 and we will see that a reminder about our past condition a reminder about our past condition will help us appreciate God's mercy in our life. 
Paul says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. A pretty treacherous description there. If you wanted a, a similar description of the nation of Israel, sometime read through the, be, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1 and read how the prophet describes the nation of Israel with as like like their wounds that haven't been cleaned. They haven't had salve applied to them or bandages there. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. I grew up at First Baptist. My parents have been going there since before I was born. I don't know a life different from life around the church. But before I came to Christ, Titus chapter 3, verse 3 described who I was. Ephesians 2, who I was, and not just a little bit, completely with every thread of my being. It's not as though these things are absent from our life because we've we've not been glorified yet. But before we came to Christ, sin, wickedness, lust, was our tyrannical ruler to whom we always submitted. We were slaves there. Now, if we are in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. But even in in our saved life, as we grow in sanctification, how does Paul describe this but a war? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, uh, the rulers of the uh, darkness of this hour. Paul says, that I run not aimlessly, I fight not as one that beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it under subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. It's still a battle for us as believers. But sometimes if we have spent any time in the church, we've grown up here or we've been around the church a long time, and we don't talk like our neighbors talk, we don't drink like our neighbors drink, We're married to the one with whom we're living, different from someone down the street that we know. We're not partaking in that sin and that, and we can easily forget the horrible pit from which our Lord saved us. We do well to pause and think about this. Paul says, We were foolish, unintelligent, dim-witted, unable to grasp self-evident truths about God. Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Same word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. A little bit later, he says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You've got to look in the mirror and say, That's me apart from Christ. I'm a fool. Disobedient to God and His will for our lives. The Ten Commandments. One of the ways in which God revealed His eternal, unchanging, moral absolutes for His people. And we would, we would be violating all of them if we could. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Have you ever seen a drunk? Have you ever sat with a drunk? I have. I have made some visits in some homes tragic situations. Man stone drunk, professing to be a believer, dumping a bottle of vodka down the sink only to have him pull another one out from behind the cushion. Is there freedom there? No, there's slavery there. And you know what? That's me and that's you in our past condition. We are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We're mastered by an incredible drive to have something forbidden or we're driven to a life seeking enjoyment at any price. This is our past condition. Spending our life in malice. Damaging speech. Our, a terrible attitude. Mean-spirited or vicious toward others. In envy. Galatians 5.19-21 paints envy in the middle of things like immorality, impurity, sensuality, sorcery, drunkenness, carousing. Envying is right smack in the middle there. And he says, I forewarn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's us. Hated by others and hating one another, Paul says. So, we're the ones that are hating other people. Actively, and we're the ones that are being hated. What attractive is there in that description of a man or a woman? There's none. God help us to see ourselves in comparison to a holy God and realize that in God saving us, this was an incredible act of His mercy. So, a reminder about our past condition, I think, helps us appreciate God's mercy. And now as we look into verses 4 and 8 with the time we have remaining, we see a reminder about God's glorious role in salvation. A reminder about God's glorious role in salvation. <clears throat> For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. God's disposition glorifies His role in salvation. That's letter A. God's disposition. Sometimes... 
we can think of God as one, now we wouldn't admit this, we would never say this, but as one who robs us of things that would be good to have. We believe the lie like Adam and Eve believed in the garden. God, somehow you're not being good to me. God, somehow you're keeping me from something that if I had, I would enjoy. But that's not God's disposition toward us. God is good to us. He is loving. Romans 2.4 Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This word here, kindness, is only used three times in the New Testament. Acts 27.3 and also in Acts 28, verse 2, when Paul and the others were shipwrecked there and they came upon the shore at Malta, the native people there showed them unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. God's kindness leads us to His mercy. Verse 5 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Mercy is related to grace, but mercy is different. Mercy is that quality which senses the weak and beggarly condition in someone else, sees it, understands it, and springs to action to benefit the other person. If someone has a, a broken leg that we just heard about today, and they have to carry something in from the parking lot to their house or to the church, what would an act of mercy be? You see they have a broken leg. They're trying to you know, manage something with their crutches. And you go over and you say, here, let me help you with that. Someone that's blind and you see them with their cane and they're walking down the street doing the best they can and there's danger that you see that they don't and you walk up to them and you say, here, let me help you. Someone's trying to move a wheelchair across an obstacle and they're struggling. And you walk up and you say, here, let me help. Someone is weak. Someone is in misery of some type, whether it's health, financial. They're discouraged. You see the need. You perceive it. And you spring to action. God saved us by His mercy. We're the ones who are dead in trespasses and sins. We're weak. We are unable to seek after God because none seek Him. But He seeks after us in mercy. The basis of salvation glorifies God's work. That's letter B. The basis of salvation. It is not as a result of our works. Listen to the contrast there. The contrast in verse 5 which contrasts are things that make a picture clear and appealing, beautiful. Contrasts here in this passage help us to see the message. Who saved us? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
human effort can never accomplish anything when it comes to salvation. Salvation is all of God. Spurgeon says, the works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation and the root must come before the fruit. The Lord saves His people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace and for no other reason. God is the one that gives salvation and gives us the root, if you will, from which then the fruit of a changed life will come. But if we see ourselves as somehow good, somehow acceptable, more acceptable than the murderer, more acceptable than the drunk, more acceptable than the drug addict, then we lose sight of the fact that it is us, every one of us, who is enslaved to sin and passions and pleasure, and not one of us should lift our head in pride all of us should see our past condition. We should see what God has done on our behalf and we should appreciate His mercy. Let us see the means of salvation glorifies God's work. Who is involved in our salvation? In this passage, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Look with me at the second part of verse 5 and all of verse 6. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So who, does, who regenerates us? Who renews us? The Spirit. Whom He poured out upon us richly. Who is pouring the Spirit out upon us? God the Father. And how has God the Father poured out the Spirit richly through Jesus Christ our Savior? When we are weak, when we are wicked, when we are sinful, when we are bound to our passions and lusts, Jesus came and He died for our sins. He took on Himself the penalty that we deserved. Salvation has been provided for us at such an incredible cost. And finally, the result of salvation glorifies God's work. So that, after we have been saved by God, renewed by the Spirit through Christ, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We today together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we stand Justified. Every one of us are sinners. Every one of us, apart from Jesus Christ, are bound for hell. But in, as in Adam, all die. Adam was the one that sinned and brought death through Jesus Christ. All shall be made alive so that we can stand here robed in Christ's righteousness. When God looks at us, He doesn't see us in our sin. He sees Jesus Christ and His righteousness. But not just the current standing that we enjoy, but also the hope. We had a funeral in our church this past week of Grace Dennison. Uh, some of you know Grace. 58 years old. A dear, godly lady. 58. Pancreatic cancer. About a year she made it. She's with Christ today. There's blessed hope. She went through an awful, awful sickness. Pain. Treatments were terrible. But... At no time in the midst of that did she lose hope. Discouraged? Yes, yeah, she's not a machine. But when people say, don't you wish 
that they would have found it sooner? And her reply was, that wasn't God's plan. This is God's plan. She rejoiced. She had hope. We don't know what will happen to us today, this week, but we have hope in Christ. So my question to you today, as we think about this passage, have we been reminded, I hope we have, that as believers, we must be zealous to pursue good works. Paul closes this idea when he says, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. I know some of you very well. I know some of you just by name and you probably will have to remind me of that when I see you again. Is this a reminder for you? Or have you never in your heart of hearts come to see Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever understood how sinful you are and because of your sin you deserved hell and appreciated God's grace and His mercy that He's poured out for you in sending Christ to die for you? If not, make today the day of salvation. But for the church gathered, a group of believers... How serious are we about pursuing a life of godliness? We ought to be zealous for good works. What sinful things are you allowing in your life out of laziness? Or perhaps what sinful things are you allowing temporary mastery because you're pursuing them? This will erode your spiritual life. On the opposite side, what are you doing to invest in yourself spiritually? If we're to be zealous for good works, then we've got to be in God's Word when it's preached or when it's taught. We've got to be engaged and say, this is part of the way that God is going to wash me with the water through the Word. Some reminders today. Are we reminded that godly living will impact our daily life? We have to see that there is a connection between our pursuit of godliness, not just in what we say, but how we live in the community and how we live toward all other people. Have we been reminded about our past condition? I hope that that's been clear, that we are the ones that are weak and beggarly, the ones for whom God acted so graciously and so mercifully to save us. If so, I think that we'll be just a little more serious about pursuing a godly life. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful that the message of Your truth is clear. You've revealed it to us. Lord, it is so easy for us to be puffed up with pride and to think we are something when really we are nothing. We are lost and undone apart from Jesus. We are hopeless to perceive the truth apart from Your Spirit's work in us. And God, apart from Your loving and wise plan to provide a way for us to be reconciled, we would be hopeless. So I ask today, God, that as we have spent some time out of our schedule looking into Your Word today, that You would help all of us to appreciate more Your mercy and our salvation. And as we understand that, I pray that You would help us to live a godly life that can show forth to the world around us that You are a great God as those of us who have been sinners, enslaved to sin, have been saved and are being transformed into trophies of Your grace. 
So to the end that you'd be glorified, we would ask that you would work through this passage today. In Christ's name, amen.